Hi, and welcome back to the third episode of the Pathfinders podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the previous episodes with Matt Diavella and Brendan Green. Episode 3 features an interview with Justin Wren, a former UFC fighter who has one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard. It's one of those stories that you could very easily see being turned into a movie in the near future. Justin Wren's story is about being bullied as a kid, climbing the ladder to become a UFC fighter, then fighting depression and addiction, being classed as a missing person as he was moving through drug dens across Colorado, and then being kicked out of his fighting gym. Justin was then able to turn his life around and begin fighting for people instead of against them. Justin created the Fight for the Forgotten Charity to free a pygmy tribe in the Congo, a tribe which were being enslaved and even eaten by another tribe. This pygmy tribe were being forced to work for food, and their masters had this belief that if they drank blood from the pygmy skulls, then it would make them invincible going into battle, and their bullets would fly through them. This interview looks at Justin's story, modern slavery, how this charity has freed tribes across the Congo, providing them with clean drinking water, land, and then teaching them agricultural skills too. Today's episode also looks at Justin's ambitious plan to combat bullying in schools across America. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give a quick disclaimer. The audio for today's interview isn't as high quality as what it was in the previous episode. This interview was conducted in early 2019 and transcribed for a feature in Volume 5 of 99% Lifestyle magazine. Back then, I didn't know that I would start a podcast, and this interview recording was meant to be transcribed and wasn't set up to record crisp audio for a podcast. Justin was watching his mom play tennis just outside Dallas, Texas when we conducted this interview via Skype on a windy day in March. Over the course of doing hundreds of interviews for 99% Lifestyle, this was one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard, and I really wanted to share this conversation with you. Justin was also happy for this audio to be released as a podcast episode too. If you are interested in discovering more about Justin's story after listening to today's episode, then you can pick up a copy of our magazine on the 99% Lifestyle website. That's simply 99%lifestyle.com. But for today, please enjoy today's episode with former UFC fighter Justin Wren. Hi Justin, thank you so much for wanting to do this interview with me today. Just to get things started, are you able to tell me a bit about yourself and what life was like as a kid before becoming a UFC fighter? Yeah, it's actually a fun day for you to ask me that because I was just at my childhood childhood home, um, and uh, it's a country town um, outside of Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, yeah, I grew up and, and just, um, I don't know, for me, I was a country kid and uh, didn't fit in well at school, so how I found fighting was uh i i actually grew up getting very heavily bullied i'd sit at the lunch table by myself i'd uh get get pelted in the back of the head with food or fist and um or chocolate milk spit wads i remember that you know vividly and just uh it was it was a bit tougher growing up i had a speech therapist that that, that was in my life from kindergarten to second grade heavily but all the way through sixth grade um so all the way through my elementary uh, maybe you could call it or primary school. Um, and so that was a little different for me. I, I, I mean, I had friends, uh, some friends, uh, a few friends, but, um, yeah, I think, I think I became a target because of the way I talked, uh, the way I looked, maybe I was a, a heavy set kid, uh, chubby. Um, and then when I was 13, that's whenever I found MMA mixed martial arts and uh, I fell in love with the sport immediately. First I was drawn to it because uh, I thought, um, my initial thought was, these guys don't get bullied. Um, and then I fell in love with the sport whenever I looked into the, 
the human chess match that it is, that, that I think it is. It's just uh, combines the Olympic sports of wrestling, both freestyle and Greco, uh, judo, taekwondo, uh, boxing. Um, it's got uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu, t- kickboxing from Thailand. Um, so I, as a kid, I, I found that when I was 13 years old, what we call here middle school. And so um, that was actually kind of gave me a bunch of hope. If I could become one of those guys one day, um, then I won't be uh, struggling with depression and um, and other things like that. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm here now in the same town. It's called Crowley, Texas. My mom's playing tennis now and about to go watch her after we're done with our interview. Um, and yeah, man, it, it's, it's cool to be back here in this town where, where it kind of all began. Okay. And um, how did you actually go about getting into the fighting scene then? Because I f- was it 19 years old, your first fight? Is that correct? Yeah, my first professional fight was 19 years old. Okay. So I started uh, after I was 13 and found the UFC. I remember I bought UFC 2 through 9, or it might have been 2 through 11. I, I just remember number 1 was missing. Um, spent all my allowance, bought all the UFC uh, that I could. Uh, hid it under my bed. Um, sorry, a lot of memories coming back from that childhood home and uh, seeing where my mom's at. And uh, I remember I used to hide the tapes underneath my bed. Whenever my parents found them, they, they, they thought it was a stack of por- pornography. <laughs> but, but it was just a stack of fighting. Um, and so I started wrestling at 15. My parents weren't up for me starting to box as a, a young guy. Um, but they allowed me to wrestle. <clears throat> and... Um, then I had two Olympic gold medalists that were my my coaches, um, Kenny Monday and Kendall Cross. Uh, they made me a ten-time state champion in the uh, state of Texas uh, in high school, a five-time All-American, um, and then I ended up winning two national championships in wrestling, um, one in high school and then one in, in Greco-Roman wrestling. Mm, okay. um, and then uh, then I went to the Olympic Training Center out of high school, so I was one of two guys to do that, go from straight from high school to the Olympic Training Center and uh, kind of skipping the university route or NCAA route and uh, I started to, to wrestle and when I got injured um, I broke my elbow, dislocated it tore the ulnary collateral ligament um, and whenever I tore that I thought man I, I haven't even gotten to do uh, what I've dreamed to do. At 13 years old that's whenever I dreamed of becoming an MMA fighter mm. Um, so whenever I healed up, um, there was only like a 30, 35% chance the surgery was going to allow me to compete again. So once I, um, I was able to compete, I decided I would, I would not wrestle anymore, but I would go right into MMA. So I was 19 years old and I was supposed to be coaching a guy. Um, and I was going around coaching professional MMA fighters, young guy, but I'd be their training partner and their coach. Um, and, uh, showed up to coach a guy and, um, he had a staph infection in his leg. It was so bad that he was hospitalized. And they were even talking about if it got worse, they'd have to amputate it. Um, and so I was the guy that was selected to go tell uh, the promoter, his opponent at the press conference, um, that he was hospitalized and couldn't compete. And when I did that, the opponent started talking trash, saying that uh, he was just he was just in the hospital a day too soon or a day early because he was going to send him there the next night, anyways. Mm, wow. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the promoter looked at me, and I think he saw something in my eyes. Or he actually said he saw the smoke coming out of my ears. <laughs> he goes, look, I'll give, you this, I'll give you this opportunity to shut this guy up if you want it. We, we, we need a fighter. We need a heavyweight, and that's you. 
I'm like, and he started talking to me and started saying, uh, if you take this guy down, uh, you'll win. If you stay standing, you'll get knocked out. I was like, whoa, 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 you're talking to me like I'm a professional fighter. I'm a wrestler. I've never fought. He's like, well, I'm giving you your chance, your opportunity. You take him down, you beat him up. You stay standing, you get beat up. Um, and I was like, well, let's do this. So I ended up taking the fight on a day notice. Um, and the fight lasted about a minute and a half. Um, took him down, beat him up. And uh, that was my introduction to MMA. And just got the the bug for fighting. Just um, I was hooked. I just uh, it's what I wanted to do. I was 13. Six years later, it happened, um, and uh, that childhood dream started to become a reality. Hmm. You got involved with a big reality TV show called The Ultimate Fighter, which gives people the opportunity to compete for a professional UFC contract. Can you tell me how you got involved with that? Yeah. So the first three fights were kind of like the first one. Um, Second one, I was supposed to coach a guy. He got the flu. I, I took the fight on a day notice. Third fight, I was actually, this was like before it was a mainstream sport like it is today. This mm. was back in like 2006. Um, and uh, third fight, I was actually in the stands drinking a beer, 19 years old. Um, and and uh, the, the promoter came out and said uh, an opponent no-showed and they needed a heavyweight. Um, and I just raised my hand and, and ended up uh, taking the fight. Actually, the opponent came in and asked if anyone would want to fight. And I just kind of raised my hand. Um, I, I strung a, a bunch of victories together. I think I was, I don't know, seven and one or something like that. And they were looking at me for some of the pay-per-views for the UFC. Um, and I was 21, seven and one. And, uh, and um, they wanted me for the pay-per-views. But then the Ultimate Fighter heavyweights came about. Um, and so I was one of the few guys that didn't have to try out. There was like over a thousand guys that tried out, uh, in Las Vegas. And since my name was already in the hat of one of the, you know, potential guys to get a UFC contract, um, they just said, this would be a great opportunity for me to get exposure and get on the show. Um, so I, I, uh, I jumped on it. Mm. And how did it feel when you finally got to fight at the UFC? I felt great, but I'll be honest and say that uh, I was also fighting an addiction. Um, I was uh, in the biggest battle of my life, which was against depression and addiction. And uh, uh, once that elbow surgery happened, um, I got hooked on on opiates. Uh, and, and something going on right now, uh, a recent thing that Dana White even did, uh, president of the UFC, um, announced on the last pay-per-view. It was a public service announcement. And it was about the opioid ep epidemic. Hmm. And uh, in the United States, um, the number one cause of death for, for Americans under the age of 50 is opioid addiction and opioid uh, overdose. And so uh, I was one of those people. I got hooked on Oxycontin. And, uh, and I had to wait four months for surgery. And all the doctors did were give me pills um, for four months. So I think it only takes a few days for you to get addicted to that stuff. Wow. Um, and I was on it for four months, a full-blown addict. Uh, I snuck pills into the Ultimate Fighter house. Um, I was using the, the whole time I was on the Ultimate Fighter. And, and, and so so that, it it's a mix It's a mix of emotions for me. It was awesome being um, at the highest level of the sport as the youngest, youngest guy at the highest level. It was awesome to be in front of all the lights and um, have your name up in lights. Uh, I mean, that's that's pretty cool. At 23, I was the main event at the Hard Rock Casino in Las Vegas. And, 
to have your picture on the marquee, it's like, wow, you know, I, I, you know, I made it. That childhood dreams reality. Um, but at the same time, even though I was in front of all the lights, I was, I was living in darkness um, and uh, fighting a, a very real addiction that almost took my life. Um, and so that, that childhood dream turned into uh, what I would say is a, kind of a nightmare. And what would you say the turning point was for you where you kind of st- steered back um, into the light as such? Yeah. I would say for me it was it was multiple moments, but, but one rock-bottom moment for me was um, I, I was – it was eight weeks where I was basically a missing person. Um, my family didn't know where I was. Friends didn't know where I was. Training partners, coaches – Nobody knew where I was, but I was hitchhiking in the mountains of Colorado um, from drug house to drug house. And I had like 60 or more unlistened un- to uh, voicemails. And the most recent one was from my best friend. And um, he said he was actually the guy that had, had the staph infection and why I got my first fight. Um, and he said, uh, I can't believe you missed my wedding. I can't believe my best man didn't show up. Um, and that was a, a real rock bottom moment for me. And then I kind of sobered me up. I went back to the to fight camp or, or my, my team and, um, everyone was looking at me different. They pulled me into my coach's office with Trevor Whitman, who was the MMA coach of the year in 2018 coach of Rose Dama Yunus and, and, and Justin Gaethje and Brendan Schaub and, um, and Shane Carwin, Nate Marcourt, myself, he pulled me into his office and said, uh, we just took a vote. Um, it was 32 or 34 to one. Um, you're no longer on this team. And so even, even that child and, and to go get help and, and, um, and go to rehab, go do something like that. And, uh, so that was rock bottom. Even that childhood dream that was reality that turned into a nightmare. Uh, even that was being ripped away from me. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so that was, that was real rough. Um, and, had some some people in my life that, that started to surround me and encourage me and love on me um to started to walk through the biggest battle of my life with me um and that was instrumental in my recovery uh, and then uh for me personally this isn't this, i don't I even know if this needs to be published but for me personally um it was it was finding my faith that really helped uh, a lot with um with man my life is 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 meant for more than addiction and depression mm. uh, it's meant meant for more it's to to make a difference it's to to live a life that's not about me um and uh it's to 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 and i, I kind of came up with these two things that if i could do two things with my life what would it be it'd be to live to love and fight for people i was always fighting against people but really i was just supposed to be fighting for people and so um that's 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 kind of where I came to in my life. That was about eight years, uh, nine months, actually eight years, ten months, and two days ago um, that I just kind of made that decision that, man, I'm never going back to this. Hmm. And um, what did you do at that moment that you decided you wanted to start helping people up until the point where you discovered this story about the pygmies? Was was you working on other things at the time, like trying to help people out? Yeah, so I heard a quote, and um, I forget who says it, but no act of kindness, no matter how small, ever goes wasted. And so I just started there. Um, from 
from instead of walking across the street from the homeless man uh, to avoid him, maybe look him in the eye, shake his hand, and just treat him like a regular person. Um, I started working at the Denver Rescue Mission for the homeless, um, started at the Denver Children's Hospital, started at my, my church with the youth group, started out uh, at a, at a um, I forget what it was, but what it was called, it was an at-risk youth um, home uh, where teens that were getting out of addiction and uh, kind of a, a kind of like a halfway house between prison and, and getting back into the real world. Started going up there and volunteering, um, and just started started locally. Mm. Okay. Um, and uh, and then started working with a, a prison outreach, that you know, just sharing my story to hopefully encourage people in the rehabilitation process. Um, started doing that nationally, um, and then internationally was never on my radar. So I was always in the camp of you got to help here before you help anywhere else. Um, and help help your own community. Mm, okay. Let the other people worry about about that. But um, man, I got I got my heart captured for the pygmies and, and their story, um, and just how uh, when I when I met them, they said everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten, um, and that just uh, captured my my attention, my heart, um, and. On my second trip to the Pygmies, uh, I remember digging the grave of a little boy named Andy Bo and having the blisters on my hands from 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 the shovel and, and just uh, and even even blood on my hands from from whenever I cupped the back of his head and, um, and and blood came out of his ears and onto my hands and just that that forever changed me. Um, little Andy Bo and his mother, who had already lost her husband due to the water crisis. Um, and already lost her other son due to the water crisis. Uh, now she was all alone. Um, that that uh that changed me forever. Hmm. Yeah, I imagine that would. And how did you come to find out about the whole pygmy story before the first trip, or was it not until you went there that you discovered really what was going on? How did you come to kind of go? If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, it's a story that's. That's a little bit of a long story, and it's kind of out there, so I don't. Um, okay. Don't, you, you can use it, but uh, it, it's um, man, I I told you I found my faith, and and eleven months into my sobriety and into kind of this life change, I just found myself at a place where I was broke, and uh, um, well, I, literally I was broke, but I, I was just broken and in, in, in spirit too, where I was just like I didn't have, have a real direction for my life, um, and felt kind of like I was, uh, I don't know, driftwood, just being taken wherever life took me. I didn't really have a target, and I'd rather be I'd rather be like an arrow flying through the air at a target, you know, instead of driftwood, just, just being tossed around wherever, wherever life takes you. Um, and so I just found myself in a set of prayer, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And that's nothing magical, nothing... Uh, I don't know, uh, but but all I know is I, I was in a place where I really wanted some direction, and uh, um, I, I had a vision, and that can sound wild. I know it can sound crazy. I thought I was crazy for three days, but I said a prayer, and then all of a sudden I had a movie in my mind, and uh, I've done a lot of visualization drills in my lifetime, 
mm-hmm. um, had sports psychologists that would walk us through mind and I'll do that before I fight. Um, I try to see things in my mind before I go out there and, and make it happen. Uh, but this, I did not try to conjure up. I didn't try to force anything. I didn't try to make anything happen. Um, all of a sudden, I was in a, uh, I was in a rainforest. I was walking down a footpath. Uh, I'm, I'm thickets and and vines and, and and bushes out of the way, and um, I'm walking. I have no idea where I am, but I hear drumming, and I keep walking, and then I hear this distinct singing, and then I come into a clearing. And I see this village and um, their huts are made of leaves. And I meet this man and the man has his ribs poking out and he's coughing. And I knew that he's sick. I didn't meet him, but I saw him. And, um, and I knew that these people were hungry and poor and sick and thirsty um, and oppressed. And the thing that I knew that I knew was that they felt forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I literally cried a little, I wouldn't say a pup but like think of a I don't know grandma's cookie or something size um, like that big of a a little puddle of tears Um, and I've never cried like that in my life and I I came out of that vision and I literally I mean I'd experimented with a lot of psychedelics and and, and shrooms and 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 different stuff and uh, and I'd seen stuff and colors and different things but this was the most vivid thing I've ever seen that didn't happen. Um, and for three days I felt like I was kind of crazy. Um, but I wrote the vision down. I just forgotten at the top that hungry, poor, sick, thirsty, oppressed. Um, and I knew that they were enslaved, that they actually called someone master. And man, I, uh, I didn't want to tell anyone that vision. Cause I, like even now it's a little <laughs> uncomfortable sharing it. Cause I know it sounds out there. I know yeah. it sounds crazy. Um, but, the first person I told was a guy named Caleb. Um, and uh, I just met him. And I found out he was friends with, with, with Bear Grylls, Man vs. Wild. Um, that he's kind of a, a wild and out there kind of guy, humanitarian, missionary guy. Um, and I was just like, well, if, if someone's going to think I'm crazy, I, I just met this guy. I might not ever see him again. Let me just tell him. And uh, I tell him the vision and start walking through it and 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 he, he stops me at the end and goes justin if there's anyone that's forgotten it's the mabuti pygmies and i'm like who he said uh, they're in the congo and i remember saying where and uh and just being blown away and him saying that he had gone there a year before mm. and met them and that he was going back in three and a half weeks from then uh but his wife had told him that he really needs a sign if he's supposed to go there or not because um, he was leading a team of three other guys and they were all husbands and fathers and they all backed out um, of going there because the U.S. State Department said don't no American for any reason go to the Congo it's an active war zone it's uh, the rebels took over the airport that we're flying into oh, wow. um, so his team backed out and uh, he was literally going to cancel the trip that day or the next day um, and he goes look Justin if, if you had a vision you go, I'll go. Um, and uh, he told me some crazy stuff. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to go there. Um, told me that the pygmies were actually being hunted. Um, like they were being hunted, killed, cooked, and literally eaten by rebel groups. That rebel groups would drink from their skulls before going into battle, thinking that it makes them invincible, that bullets would 
fly right through them. Um, and I'm like, man, like, I don't know if I want to get, you know. um, but as I started to think about it, it was just like, man, if, 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 if I don't go, I'll always wonder what was that? Like, am I crazy? Did I have some sort of mental break? Um, or was I supposed to do something? Was I supposed to meet these people? Like, I just knew I'd always question. Um, so I told Caleb I'd go. Um, we brought another buddy along named Colin. Uh, they both knew the vision. We get there, and I just remember um, when when we when we get to the forest, we, we were walking through uh, this massive rainforest, clearing thickets out of the way. Um, all of a sudden, we hear drumming. Caleb looks at me with big eyes. <laughs> we hear singing. We get into the clearing, and, and the first guy we see is tuberculosis. Um, and he's he's coughing, and he's sick. And um, we meet these people, and, and that's where I told you the chief pulled us to the side and said, look, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, man, I, 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 I know that people can 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 um, can be anywhere on the spectrum with, with this kind of thing, and, and I can be a nut. But, but, uh, but it's what happened. And, um, and it, it, it forever changed my life. It gave me a purpose. It gave me a passion. It gave me a people, um, that, that's like a family to me. Um, and, uh, and it's also given me a reason to, to not quit when the times get tough. Mm. Um, it's uh, given me a reason to dig deep like they do on a daily basis. Um, and it's, it's added a lot of purpose and value to my life. Um, and so I just encourage people to be open-minded and, and, and maybe someday say a prayer, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And, mm. uh, and you, you might get an answer. Yeah. Um, it, it might not be anything spectacular like, like that, but, or, or, you know, that profound. Um, but it could be some sort of direction. It could be a person put in your life that, that leads you into the right direction. How did you go about putting actions into place to make a difference in the Congo? It appears this will be a mammoth task and, most people wouldn't have a clue where to start with this. Yeah, so um, it was uh, it was it was a defeating process um, at first. It was like everything seemed way too way too uh, hard, way too tough. Um, it seemed impossible. Uh, to do anything to help, like on scale, like this is a massive problem, and I'm I'm one dude. Like, what am I going to do to help? And this isn't my country. It's not my culture. Uh, you know how? Uh, you know if I the image I got in my head was I could spend the rest of my life uh, trying to help, and it might be like trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper. You know, like am am I? going to get anywhere um and so i just but once i fell in love with the people and 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 they're so worth it um and started talking to them and and they didn't want charity they wanted uh they wanted an opportunity and they just wanted people to come alongside them and encourage them and say you can do it and, and give them some practical wisdom like things that they didn't know they wanted to learn um and um Hopefully it's real quick. Hopefully it's okay that I'm outside and the wind's going. No, no, yeah, that's yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, 
myself and Walt and Bill Sorto learn from them and love them. Just, just those four simple things. Like, you got to immerse yourself in the culture. It's, it's one thing to, um, it's one thing to read about. It's another thing to um, see. It. Hello. Sorry, Justin, I can't hear you too well. The call's breaking up. Are you still able to hear me? We had a few technical difficulties during the middle segment of this interview. As with any interview I do via the internet, there is always a chance of technology failing on you and interrupting the call. This happens quite frequently on long-distance calls, and it's something you have to accept when conducting interviews in this format. I thought I'd use this time during the middle of the podcast to let you know where to find us on social media. We're on at 99%Lifestyle on Instagram, and at Pathfinders underscore pod on Twitter. Make sure you share the podcast if you've been enjoying the first three episodes and let us know what you think so far. Let's get back to today's episode. Connor, are you still here? Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me okay? Yes. I'm going to go back into the car. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you okay? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, uh, my, my goal, I just felt like you could learn the most by living it with them. And so, um, and that was a way that, that I didn't know it, but that was a way that you would develop deep relationships and trust and, um, and it would turn into me getting adopted, uh, as family with them and become a, a trusted, safe place, um, and so, yeah, I just started working with the locals, and the locals had ideas of how how to help. They know their culture better than I do, and um, so the whole thing was we got to work through the local people um, to make the difference. And uh, there's a Swahili proverb, and I love it. The, the pygmies and and the well drilling team there taught it to me, but it says if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Okay. Um, and so the whole goal was we gotta we gotta go to take this as far as we want. Like let's not go too fast from one person's ideology. Let's let's do this as a community. And let's go together and let's go far. Um, let's let's go deep with with the community development work that we wanted to do. A lot of your work involves providing clean drinking water to the pygmy tribes. Can you tell me how many wells you've built as of this moment in time? Yeah, so in the year that I was there, um, the I, I, I helped get back 2,470 acres of land uh, for the pygmies. Do you guys do acres or hectares there, or both? Uh, both, both, yeah, that's fine. Okay, okay. So we did 2,470 acres of land, and then I was there to help them to drill the first 13 uh, water wells in 13 different communities there. Um, the team that I was the founder of, those guys are flying on their own two wings, doing incredible stuff. Um, they've they've drilled over 70 water wells there. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. They've, they've got a, uh, three working farms now, and the pygmies are able to not – just uh, feed themselves. It's, we, we were able to resettle 1,500 people um, onto their own land 
uh, and now they get to be free on that own land. And so um, they don't have to call anyone master and work for somebody else. They get to work for themselves. Um, and with that, they're able to go to the market. And there's literal, like, I mean, it's not big journalism going on, but, um, you know, the local radio is talking about how, wow, the pygmies are farming and they have the best bananas at the market. Mm. And, uh, and so there's one just an incredible banana farm with hundreds of banana trees um, that's out there on their land. Um, and now we're, we're, we're starting a new initiative, which I'm really stoked about next month. I go to Uganda for the Batwa pygmies. Okay. So we've always worked with the Mabuti pygmies. But now we're working with the Batwa pygmies in Uganda, and we're kind of restarting the the land, water, and food initiatives in a new country. And we're about to be able to go give them it's 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 way less land, but it's something to start with. And um, it's uh, an acre of land and six new water wells in, in six different areas. Um, and we're we're also purchasing a farm on their behalf um, that they're going to work and and be able to send their kids to. From, from being able to feed themselves to be able to sell it at the market to be able to make the money and then be able to actually put their kids in school for the first time. You even help get the water to the slave masters as well which I know some people might look at and ask the question why but to me it shows that you fought out every aspect because if you gave water just to the pygmies then their slave masters would surely come and steal this from them and peace would have then been broken. Yes, that was... That was uh... That was one of the main keys. It, the land purchases helped put money in the pocket of the former masters. So that was a, a big, crucial, vital part of it. But also their kids were dying of not having access to clean water. Mm-hmm. And if you imagine um, children or women, the, 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 the wife not being able to go to work um, because she has to collect water or the children not being able to, to go to school because they have to go collect clean water. Um, or, you know, uh, 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 I'm thinking of one master from his children because of the water crisis. He lost two of four children. Um, being able to bring life into a community and say, hey, if you guys just work with us, we want to help this community build up as a whole. We don't want to leave anyone behind. We want to help you all out. We just want to love you guys, encourage you guys. And we want to Tamika Pomoja in Swahili. We want to work together. Hmm. Uh, for 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 the for the benefit of the whole community, how do we do that? Would water do that? Absolutely, water would do that. If we could have access to clean water, that would change everything. And I remember them just saying that water is life. Water changes everything. Um, and uh, and so water was was absolutely crucial in that too. It was the land purchases and bringing clean water. Hmm. And was it fairly difficult to get the funding to to supply all this, or was it not as difficult as what you first thought? Um, funding is always difficult <laughs> um, because uh, operating off of donations uh, and asking people for hard-earned money is, is, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with that, um, and it's and it's a hard it's a hard ask a lot of times, but uh, but people are moved. Uh, with compassion to help and and we've had an incredible amount of uh of of support through the years and and not meaning necessarily if you look at other charities they maybe raise a whole lot more but but we have a lot of a lot of donors that give what they can you know five dollars here and there or a dollar here 
And um, so, and sometimes those are my favorite gifts to get are, are from a, a five-year-old that, you know, saved up his lunch money. Mm, yeah. And, and decided he would sacrifice getting pop or, or Coke at school, you know, soda at school uh, and would just drink water. And then he, the money saved from, from not drinking soda, you know, he's able to, to donate and, and, and give people clean water that way. Um, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. And um, something else I also read about is that there was some sort of corruption going on as well during the whole process. What was that about? Yeah, I, I think corruption is, is something that plagues a lot of the developing world. Um, everybody's out to, to, to for themselves. And you can say you're coming in to help the community and they'll say, well, how does that help me? And if they're not a direct recipient of the water or, you know, you got to get through their town to go to the other town that needs the water. Um, you know, uh, they can, they can try to bribe you and everything else and, and, uh, save their fees for this and fees for that. Um, but the, the good thing is when you work through the locals, they, they, they see all that and, uh, and know what's happening on or what's happening and can steer you away from that or, or we can be hard-headed and stubborn when we have the time to stay and just kind of wait out the corruption sometimes and mm. just like, no, we're not going to pay that. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've, one, a couple of my guys were detained and I was, I got to stay in a hotel, but two of our well drillers were, were on house arrest at, at a, a, a border town between Uganda and Congo. And it was because, you know, we, we had paid all the fees as a nonprofit to get the vehicle a truck that transports all our equipment. Um, and, uh, we, um, you know, they, they locked up the truck for like three weeks, wanting $3,000. And we're like, we already paid everything we were supposed to pay. We're not paying $3,000. And so we just waited. And I think we became more annoying um, <laughs> than they were stubborn. And, uh, they finally released us, our truck to us, but our guys were detained on Christmas Eve and Christmas day. And, um, missed that with their families and uh it was all because of the corruption so mm. yeah so how how do you feel about the work that you've done because you've done a lot to reinvent a community and you're looking to do that again in the future um i'm i'm pleased uh i'm i'm actually overwhelmed and blown away that that we've done more than i ever could have thought at the beginning um, but now I'm catching a vision for, for doing it more. There's, there's pygmies in, in a lot of different African nations. Um, I should know the exact number, but I know that they're in Uganda and Rwanda mm. and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, Gabon, Cameroon, Burundi. And I might be in, missing another country, but I think that's where the pygmies are. And so uh, in most of these nations, they're they're facing the same thing. They don't have rights to land. They don't have access to clean water. They can't farm for themselves. They have to do it for other people for, for no wages at all. They just get paid the scraps of, of, of food and so that they're hungry enough that they have to come back and work the next day. Um, and, and some are enslaved, some are indentured servants. Um, and there's, there's a way to, to replicate, um, the work that we're doing, we just need more boots on the ground um, and uh, a solid strategy 
Um, and uh, so there's there's a lot more work to do. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what we've been able to do. And um, I'm excited to see what we're, we're going to do in the next 10 years to come. Um, I'm also excited that we're expanding in the U.S. And actually, I think a, a, a martial arts academy or two in the U.K., Okay. Um, we're doing we're doing bullying prevention, so we've kind of caught a higher vision for fight for the forgotten, where we do community development and character development to knock out bullying worldwide. Mm. Um, so uh, bullying goes on everywhere. The pygmies are the most bullied people on earth. Um, anthropologists call them the most oppressed people group on earth. So a way that I would interpret that is they're the most bullied, um, and so. There's also bullying in the United States that, that it's it's absolutely wild. Um, 180,000 students every day they skip school because they're afraid of going to school because they're being bullied. Wow, they're being that's targeted insane. And uh, going through depression, that's that's 3 million school days lost every month. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. Uh, I think over 20% of our, our high school students deal with depression. One in three students feel like they're victims of bullying. Um, and so what we, we have a program called heroes in waiting and it's a 12 week curriculum that students can go through and we're going to be in a hundred martial arts academies this year. Um, or we already are, we're about to deploy it to them all. Um, and, uh, but we also want to get into public and private schools with an online curriculum where they can track their progress and go through it. And the whole, the whole premise of it is we're all heroes in waiting. And what does that mean? We can all make a difference. And, and uh, what is a hero? A hero is someone who sees a need and takes action immediately. You know, being a hero isn't something supernatural and, and you don't have to wear capes and you don't have to be Superman. Like, you can just do a random act of kindness and, and be a hero for the day. Um, you know, you can make a difference in somebody's life and make it better. Um, and uh, when we see a need, we need to take action. And so what we are trying and encourage the students with is to know that uh, when it comes to bullying, there's a statistic that says 87% of the time a bystander speaks up on behalf of the bully victim that the bullying stops within five seconds. Wow. So the bystander needs to be empowered to know that they can make a difference. Um, the bystander needs to know that they have a choice. You know, they can be uninvolved which actually studies show that a, by, a bystander isn't an innocent bystander. They're actually now involved. And um, the bully takes their silence as a silent supporter, that this person that's not doing anything is a silent supporter. They don't, they're not stopping me, so they're encouraging me. Uh, um, and so uh, we need to educate the bystanders to move from being a bystander to come alongside as an upstander. And to do the right thing, to get involved, to report it, or to stand up for the, the person being bullied. Um, and just to, and that could be something as simple as saying, hey, that's not kind. Um, they stop that, or, or invite the person being bullied to come over and be with their group or sit at their table, or, or to just, you know, the power of, of just not letting someone feel like they're all alone. You know, let them know that, that, that someone sees them and cares about them. And that's going to be okay. Yeah. And I feel the work that you're doing is, is incredible. I, I know a few people have said this to you, that your life should be turned into a film, but I, I, do, I, do, I do agree with that. Uh, I, I was at the TEDx Warwick um, 
talk that you did. And something that stayed with me since watching the video that you showed there was about the the statistic about modern day slavery and how it's um, more than ever at the moment. I think the statistic was 27 million slaves in the world today. And that totally blew my mind because yeah. I like, like how you said it, basically, you thought that was a thing of the past and I was the same. And I think that's probably what a lot of other people would have thought. So um, it, it's crazy to think that um, that that is the case. I, I, why do you think not many people are, are as aware of that? Yeah, I, I still think it's it's not the the statistics actually show that. Uh, I mean, other other ones, twenty seven million is a low estimate now. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are saying that it's thirty two, thirty seven. One one estimate I saw was forty that we're approaching forty million. Um, so I always go with the lower one. Um, but uh, it's just wild that that we don't have our eyes open to this. That our world is almost divided um, into into the modern world and then and then we're just blind and oblivious because we're uh, we're entertained with our with our little gadgets and and our social media and, and everything else and it's like man we, we we could do so much good if we just were more aware and um more engaged and uh more willing to act and to sacrifice and to do the right thing one of the final questions I just wanted to ask is what advice would you give to people that would like to make a difference that perhaps are sitting there thinking that they're just one person, they cannot make a difference? I tell them the same thing that started to change my life. No act of kindness, no matter how small, ever goes wasted. Start there. Start small. And then just uh, build on that. Just, uh, you know, we I, I love about our, our Heroes Awaiting program, there's 12 weekly hero challenges and it encourages them to go out and make a difference this way or to go out and make a difference that way you know one of the challenges is it's a it's a, a secret random act of kindness so the rules are, are the person can't know it's you and it's got to make them feel great it can't put you in harm's way but go out there and, and, and do something great for them and come back and report how that made them feel and then how that made you feel you know like like just it's contagious it's it's contagious doing good is contagious mm. making people feel great is contagious doing the right thing is contagious and so um i just feel like if we start small and then and we'll be led from there uh, on what bigger impact we can make but if we start at the, the the grandiose big high vision sometimes that will intimidate us sometimes that will scare us sometimes that will make us give up before we ever get started I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode with Justin Wren. This podcast is now available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. If you would like to follow us on social media, then all the links can be found on the 99% Lifestyle website. That's again simply 99%lifestyle.com. At the end of every interview I conduct, I ask the interviewee to give me five recommendations for our audience. These can be from books you should read, musicians you haven't heard of before, other podcasts to listen to, to documentaries that you should watch. These recommendations are sent out as a free newsletter each and every week to the 99% Lifestyle newsletter subscribers. All issues of the newsletter are archived on the website too. If you would like to read Justin's recommendations, then head over to 99%lifestyle.com, head over to the newsletter page, and then click on issue number 92.
Whilst you're there, if you sign up to the newsletter, then you will also be updated about new podcast episodes, blog posts, and various product releases from our print magazines to clothing products. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. We'll be back again very soon.